responsibilities of being raised up with Christ. We ought to seek where Christ is. We ought to focus on Him. And we need to have a transformed life. To uh, put to death the deeds of the old man. Uh, We change persons. We change selves. We put on the new self that's being renewed according to the image of God. We are re-renewed into God's image. And uh, that's really the idea uh, that he's been talking about. So, you know, when we come into Christ, there are practical changes in our life that have to accompany the life in Christ. Now, he's going to be specific now about some of the things we need to put on. You know, he talked in verse 5, verse 8, verse 9 about specific things we have to get rid of as we put off the old man. So what do we add? 12 to 17. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the, of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Okay, so in 12, uh, here's what you put on. You put on a heart of compassion. Um, you know, think about, as you look at each of these qualities, where would you turn to in the Bible for the greatest example of compassion? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, think about Jesus and show his compassion. And that's going to be true with every one of these qualities. Jesus is going to be the model. So when you think about compassion, think about how much Jesus cared about others, how much he gave himself, how much he served, how much he felt with them. You know, there's not a quality God exhorts us to have that he hasn't uh, possessed and shown to us uh, before he ever told us to have these things. So, starting with uh, compassion, we move to kindness, and then to humility. You know, humility is not a very prized trait. We like to be on top and dominant. We don't like to serve and humble ourselves. But think about Jesus. Where had he been? And where did he end up? You can't get a better example of humility than thinking about all that Jesus gave up and all he did to lower himself to serve and to sacrifice himself for others. And then he talks about uh, kindness, you know, and, and humility. Uh, kindness and, and yeah, humility, uh, then gentleness, rather, and, and patience. I mean, all of those are Christ-like qualities that really require us to change our heart. You know, a, a patient person is not quickly peeved, not quickly irritated. A patient person doesn't harbor resentment, doesn't hold grudges. Uh, And he talks about that in verse 13, bearing with one another. 
you know, if you bear with somebody, you know, they may be frustrating, they may be annoying habits, they may get under your skin, but you bear with them. You're you're not you're not quick to cut them off or to give up on them. You forgive each other. You know, just as the Lord forgave you. That's the model he keeps turning to. If if we forgave our enemies the way God forgives his, no, if, if, if God forgave his enemies the way we forgive ours, think about that. If God forgave his enemies the way we forgive our enemies, where would we be? You know, so we really need to think about putting on the kind of heart and attitude that the Lord has. And beyond all these things, Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love is almost always on the top. It's almost always at the root. You know, love is always in the climactic position. It's kind of the virtue that binds all the others together. Think about like uh, a belt that just, you put it on and it kind of gathers your clothes up. Well, love is that is that belt. You know, it's the perfect bond of unity. It, it sort of brings together all the other qualities and focuses them on doing something constructive. You know, love is kind of the summation and the essence of what we're to be as Christians. So 12, 13, and 14 are just a great summary of the kind of qualities that the man who's been risen with Christ, who's seeking the things of Christ... These are the kinds of attitudes, the kind of heart he puts on. Very much in contrast with verse 8, which had all the strife and the malice and the abusive speech. Here's the very opposite. The kindness and humility and and concern. Comments and questions uh, on that through verse 14. Look at verse 15, 16, and 17. Verse 15 deals with the peace of Christ. And verse 16 deals with the word of Christ. And verse 17 deals with the name of Lord Jesus. Yes. So you got the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, the name of the Lord. Now what does he want the peace of Christ to do? What does that mean? What would what would it mean for the peace of Christ to rule in my heart? Well, other things can't be ruling then. It's okay. not the anxiety of Christ or the uh, fear or um, yes. peace that's ruling. Okay, that's true. Yeah, because if we're at peace with the Lord, then we have confidence and we trust. He's been talking, though, in verses 12 to 14, mostly about our attitude and behavior toward each other. I bet you in this context, the peace of Christ is more the peaceful attitude toward others, and this peace of Christ rules in your heart. If you have peace ruling in your heart, then that's going to affect your attitude toward other people. You're going to pursue peace, seek peace. Uh, When differences threaten to spring up, you're going to make peace like the judge, the arbiter. 
if peace really dominates our heart, then we're peace-loving people. Um, you know, it's not enough just to, you know, have some contact with peace. Like, you know, have some kind of uh, intersection with peace. But we want peace ruling our heart, you know, right in the center of our lives, you know, and, and just governing how we look at things and especially how we relate to other people. You know, he says, to which indeed you were called in one body. And the one body would indicate you need the peace of Christ to unite that body together. And what's the end of verse 15? Be thankful. And what's the end of verse 16? Thankful. And what's the end of verse 17? Be <laughs> so that's a real theme. I really think that gratitude is one of the most underemphasized virtues in the Bible. Considering how great an importance gratitude and thankfulness is in the Bible, I just don't think we think about it very much. How does gratitude relate to peace? Yeah, that's exactly right. We have conflict because we're self-seeking and we're frustrated with the way things are. A peaceful disposition is, is much more likely to resolve bitterness and jealousies and, and spats and conflicts and things like that. You know, when you're really thankful, how can you harbor ill will and grudges and bitterness? You know, the more we're thankful, the more we're going to have the love of God in us and the peace of Christ just dominating our hearts and our relationships. Make sense in 15? When you're entitled, when you think you're entitled to something, then there's no peace when you don't get it. How do we feel? When we think we're entitled to something, how do we feel? We riot. Yeah. It's our, it's our right. We deserve it. And so how do we always feel? Slighted. Yes. Slighted, hurt, frustrated. You know, do you remember that passage in James chapter 4 that really deals with this? Where he says uh, in verse 1, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder, you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You know, this, this constant discontentment, the constant ingratitude, will just lead us to be at war. We're just constantly in conflict, constantly irritated, constantly telling people off, because instead of being thankful, I want this, I want that, this isn't right, that's not fair, I don't like this. You know, I think I can say this in uh, America's doesn't too often get into Brazilian hands. But, you know, we've been working with a couple. And, you know, she would acknowledge that her one of her biggest problems is ingratitude. She's just not changing that. And, and what she does is, nothing her husband does is ever good enough. It never satisfies her. In fact, there have been times I've said, okay, given this situation, is there anything he could do 
that you would be happy with, that you'd be satisfied. Is there a way for him to please you? If he'd do anything, if he'd change anything, what what would what would make you happy? She can't come up with anything. You know, because when you're not grateful, it's not what you don't have, it's that you don't have an attitude of appreciating anything. Gratitude really helps with the conflicts. Now look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's a really cool way of saying that. You know, what would be the difference between letting the word of Christ uh, poorly dwell within you and richly dwell within you? There's more of it, and there's less of other things. Yeah. So if you think about it that way, the Word of Christ is going to richly dwell within you, then you're giving a really high priority, and you're really focusing on the Word of Christ. You know, in many churches, you know, worship's a spectator sport, and people are just biblically illiterate. You know, the Word of Christ doesn't dwell with them at all. You know, we've got to really give the Word a big place in our life, you know, and really cherish that Word. And as a result of that, we teach and admonish with all wisdom. Um, You know, why would it be important to teach and admonish um, with all wisdom? You don't need wisdom to teach and admonish, do you? Yes, but I don't know that the wisdom here is so much along the lines of not teaching something wrong. Maybe you're always teaching something right, so why would you need wisdom? Oh, but then you need tax because you've got to teach it in the right way. Yeah, you know, if we don't do that, what do we sometimes accomplish? You push the person further away. That's exactly right. Sometimes you get the opposite result you're going for because you're not wise in how you, you respond. So you, with all wisdom, you teach and admonish uh, one another. Um, And um, singing with thankfulness, you know, so we're admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing ought to express our gratitude. You know, we have gratitude, thanks in our heart. And then we sing to the Lord to express our appreciation express our gratitude. Uh, now, what about... Uh, well, well, think about this. In this verse, then, he's connecting the Word with the Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, so, what makes a psalm, hymn, or spiritual song good? What you're saying and taking to heart? Yeah. What should it say? What should it express? God's word. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes, what, what do we focus most on in a, in a spiritual song usually? Music. The music, the tune, the beat. You know, this one, this one really gets me fired up, man. Mm-hmm. It's really exciting. Well, you know, really, the content needs to be the thing that I'm worried about. And, and does it really express the word of the Lord? Is it, is, is, is it a reflection of the word dwelling in me? 
Um, so we're supposed to do that with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You know, we sing not just with our lips. We also sing with our heart. The heart's the instrument that we play to God. You know, in Ephesians 5, it's kind of like the harp, except it's the heart. You make melody in your heart, not on your harp. Um, so, so we want God's Word dwelling in us richly. And then, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Um, how much would that cover of our life? Oh. Yeah. Every time we're in church. Well, yes. And. <laughs> and. Anything? Anything. Everything. Every aspect of my being is really, in one sense, service, worship to God. Now, I understand there are specific acts of honoring God. But there's a sense in which my whole life is supposed to honor God. Everything I do ought to be done in the light of His being Lord. So it ought to be consistent with His character. It ought to be trusting in His power, obeying His will. You know, we ought to do everything, you know, by what He says. Um, And again, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. You know, you just can't can't get too much of the need to be thankful in serving the Lord. Hi! How are you? Good, how are you? Great. Hi. Hey, how are you doing? Miss Kendra. Hi. Oh, hi. (laughs) (laughs) You're sorry I'm late. You're fine. No problem. In you didn't know who's going to show up, did you? <laughs> no. <laughs> you, you thought I was going to be your favorite person here, didn't you? <laughs> Why did you laugh? Uh, okay, so we're in Colossians 3, okay. uh, finishing up with 17. So thoughts and comments through 17. So it's verse... Um, Hiya, pal. Nice to see you. 16, just talking about the singing? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think the Word of God, Christ richly dwells within us in every respect. And we also teach and admonish each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So I think he's connecting the two, but he's not, he's not saying all of letting the Word dwell within us is just expressed in singing. And neither is all the teaching... And admonishing. Done in song. That's it's correct. It's not. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what really, I mean, the whole idea is that every part of our life is focused on the Lord. So it's not just when we're doing certain things of worship, but really everything. Whatever you do in word or deed, let God be honored and glorified in. Okay, kind of the way my Bible has it punctuated makes it sound like with all wisdom we're teaching and admonishing in song, but I, I could see where that is not the only way that we're teaching and admonishing. Yeah, here the teaching and admonishing is primarily in song, but certainly there's other ways to teach and admonish. I don't think that the songs are the only way to let the Word of Christ which they dwell within you. I mean, it's kind of saying, let, let God's Word dwell in you 
Now, with all wisdom, teach and admonish each other in song. That's that's one way of getting the word dwelling in you. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts or comments? I like that the peace of Christ like rules in your heart instead of just like is in your heart because it's kind of like you're working through this thing and the peace of Christ like either with other people or with yourself it's like okay well if the peace of Christ is what like makes the decision in my heart well now I have something to look at instead of just like oh well be at peace the peace of Christ is almost like the referee yeah yeah it resolves the conflicts you know mm-hmm. it really it makes it possible for me to live with people who are I, I'm annoyed by and who hurt me and things like that. Could you even maybe, <laughs> and with yourself too? Could you maybe say that when the peace of Christ is ruling in my heart, then I am able to relate with other people and be at peace with them? But I have to let Christ's peace first be in my life, then I can be at peace with others. Yeah, I mean, there. Yeah, and certainly that's true. I mean, you know, our peace with the Lord spills over then into peace with other people. Yes. You know, and so it's the peace God's given us that we share with others. I agree with that. Anything else? Do verse seventeen when Colossians three. So. Okay. You know, there are other ways that we show this new transformed life. And one of those ways is in our household relationships. So, 18 to 4 1. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves in all things obey those who are in your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that the Lord, that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Master's grant to your slave justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Okay. So again, because of the lordship of Christ, because we're seeking him, because of our transformed life, then even our relationships, like family relationships, are transformed. So with wives and husbands, you know, putting this, this uh, you know, focus on Christ into practice begins at home. So what are wives supposed to be doing? Yeah. Well, that's clearly not right. Because women are supposed to be equal with men, right? <laughs> well, that's the modern that's the modern way of thinking, you know. Men and women are kind of trading places now. Like in society, not just in the home. So, but isn't it true from the Bible that men and women are supposed to be equal? Well, what do you mean by equal? Well, uh, Paul said there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, but you're all one in Christ Jesus. So men and women are supposed to be equal. Yeah, but Equal, but not the same. What this passage is talking about. Okay, how so? 
Well, you all, everyone has Christ's salvation. Everyone is equal in terms of their worth to Christ and their ability to be saved by Christ, etc. They don't all have the same job. They don't all do the same thing or have the same role. Yeah. Well, at the very beginning, God pretty much established men and women's roles. And, you know, all being equal in Christ means, you know, we all have the opportunity to be saved. Regardless of gender. Are there other relationships of submission where somebody submits to someone they're equal to? Like what? When would that be? There's a relationship with our elders. We're equal as Christians with them, uh, but yet we submit to them in the congregation. Yes. What about Jesus and his father? Did Jesus submit to his father? Was he equally was he equally God with the Father? Yes. Yeah. We, we you know if we let people define our terms, they'll get us tangled up. You know. Yeah, we're equal. Equality is not the issue. Uh, you know, having uh, equal you know humanity, equal dignity and honor as men. You know, and so forth. Absolutely. But there are role differences. Submission does not mean inequality. And notice here he says, women be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, what's supposed to determine for us what's fitting? The Lord. Not culture. Not, you know, how we do things now. The Lord is supposed to be in charge of that. And so the wives being subject to their husbands is what the Lord finds fitting and right and appropriate. You know, we don't fit our culture. What does he said in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4? You know, you're raised up with Christ. Keep thinking things, things above. Set your mind on things above. You know, we're oriented toward a different world where things are different than they are in our culture. Um, what about husbands? What are they supposed to do? Love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Yeah. So husbands need to carry out their leadership unselfishly, self-sacrificingly, seeking what's best for their wives. And uh, not being embittered against them. You know, think about a woman as being like a, a tender, fragile flower. That with tender, loving care, she blossoms and is beautiful and fragrant, but if you mistreat her, she kind of wilts and withdraws. So, you know, husbands can't have this bitter relationship where he's harsh and he's unfeeling and and he's just difficult. Uh, that, that would not be the appropriate attitude. So husbands don't like take advantage of their leadership to get their wife to do what they want them to do. Husbands seek the best for their wives, and the wives submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That's the Bible model. A totally revolutionary idea in our day. That, what Kendra said is right. People are really shifting that a lot, very quickly. And kind of trying to come up with this obliterate sexual distinctions, gender distinctions. And that's just, we can't do that biblically, can we? 
Well, I was also going to say, I heard a sermon back home about he, the preacher touched on roles and he was saying how women today just want to be strong and independent and a lot of that had to do with men were not doing their job. And I think that's why it's changing so much because I'm not saying all men, but a lot of men in general just got lazy and didn't do what they're supposed to, so women started to take over what they're supposed to do. Yeah, it's certainly easy for both sides of the equation not to follow God's principles. You know, a loving husband will take the lead and will seek to direct <coughs> his wife. A lazy husband won't. You know, and a, and a, a faithful wife will be submissive. She'll respect what her husband says. An unfaithful one won't. God's will is perfect in this. You know, he's making us again into his image. Um, what about children and fathers? What were the children supposed to do? Obedient. How obedient? In all things. So that's pretty comprehensive. <laughs> you know, God intends for children to obey their parents. This is what's well pleasing in the Lord. Um, so, always? As long as their parents are alive? <laughs> no. No, why not? Because they might change category and become a husband or a wife, and then the rules. <laughs> <coughs> or yes. the parents themselves. How, but why do the rules change? Shouldn't this be a true all the time? Sure. He didn't say, you know, <laughs> children obey, be obedient to your parents and all things until you got married. If it was implied. Well, how do you know? Because it's logical. Well, for one thing. <laughs> That's not a good answer. When you get married, you leave your father and mother and you're joined to your wife. There's a scriptural principle right there. Which which would be important if you stop and think about it. What if his parents said, do this, and her parents said, do that? You know, so God specifically said that the couple is to cut the apron strings. They still honor their parents, but they don't obey them at all. You know, this is for children. This is not for adults. Um, and so children obey, but when we're a child, that's what we need to do. Um, fathers do not exasperate your children so they, they will not lose heart. What would that mean? Exasperate your children. I think in modern terms it means don't push their buttons. Yeah. Like for the sake of pushing their buttons. Yes. When you've got a father who exasperates his children and they lose heart. wonder how the father accomplished that. What, what can you do to cause your children to lose heart? Tell them they won't amount to anything. Just constantly harp on how they're worthless, useless, and will never amount to anything. And what else? You can be too difficult to please. Yes. They're holding them to too high a standard. Yes. We want you to be better. We're not satisfied with this. You've got to do that. We're not satisfied with that. It's got to be this. And, and it becomes something where you lose your hope of ever pleasing them, of ever being worth anything. Anything you do, it's like, no, do this. Not, no, it's got to be up here. No, it's up here. 
And so it's just like you never are good enough. Um, now, parents do that because they want to make their children better. You know, a lot of times that's not malicious. We, we want our children to, to do as well as they can. But if they grow up with this sense that no matter what I do, I, I'm a failure, well, that just paralyzes us. So fathers have to be careful not to exasperate, not to cause their children to lose heart. Um, the children need to obey. And what about uh, thoughts and comments on that? Maybe I should ask first through 21. It's a balance, I would say, mm-hmm. between expecting nothing and expecting too much. That's right. Okay. And it depends on the child somewhat. But it is possible to take our children's morale away from them. To just make them feel like they can't accomplish anything. They've never done anything good enough for us. We have to watch that. Um, you know, many of you don't have children, but you will. Many of you pre-think. You know, when you're a young person and you can understand the Bible and you hear things about parents, don't think so much about your parents. Think about yourself as a parent later. Because what you're wanting to do is have the proper understanding, the proper goal, the proper heart, so that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, whenever you have children, you already understand what you should and should not do. All right, what about slaves? What are they supposed to do? Obey your master. So yes. You have that. Oh, wait, no. Yeah, serve. Obey your master. Uh, not with not merely pleasing men, but with identity of hearts, fearing the Lord. So you serve them fearing God, not just trying to make your masters happy. And certainly from 20, 22 and 23, not doing it just when they're looking. This is not just so you'll impress them. This is because you really want to serve, do your work hardly as for the Lord. The Lord was the one who's going to um, repay you, who's going to reward you. That's kind of ironic. You know, you get the reward of the inheritance from, from God, well, what, what what would a slave's inheritance be normally? Nothing. Slaves are not entitled to an inheritance. They're slaves. And yet, a Christian slave inherits the blessings that the Lord is providing. And And here's the penalty. If you do wrong, you'll receive the consequence of the wrong you've done without partiality. You know, nobody receives preferential treatment. You know, God will judge righteously. So, wonder why in this letter, Paul spends four verses on husbands, wife, parents, and children together. And then he spends four verses just on slaves. How did you say that? <laughs> I missed the Ness. <laughs> Onesimus. Who was Onesimus? Yeah. Of who? Who lived where? Apparently so. And so maybe because of that, Paul is reiterating 
the fact that slaves should be obedient and submissive to their masters. They ought not to be rebels. Um, but, what does he say? Well, maybe we should read this. But, but in ver- chapter, four, chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So, every earthly master is somebody else's slave. Jesus is a slave. So, treat your slave the way you want your master to treat you. That's challenging, Timothy. That reminds me of the parable of um, there's this master and he goes away and the slave treats his slaves bad and then he gets thrown in jail by his master. Mm-hmm. That's true. Alright, thoughts and comments through four one. Might have been too that it was a little more um, quite a bit different teaching about slaves thinking anyway than the other is You're not right. so far out of line you know wives, husbands, children, fathers slaves believe it or not this applies to you here's some details about it So, yeah good point yeah. do people um, misuse verse 23 or overuse verse 23 <laughs> They could. What would you? What are you thinking of? Well, like it's kind of like I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. People like throw it out there as <laughs> like this applies to anything. Like you need to do it well. And so, what does verse twenty three apply to? <coughs> Slaves. Okay. <laughs> Is that the only application? No. You know, is it appropriate, say, for somebody who's hired by someone? to work heartily and to work hard and sincerely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I think there is a sense in which even, you know, employees should follow these principles. You know, they ought to work hard, not just when the boss is looking. They ought to give sincere effort. They ought to work har- heartily. I think the way I would hear this misapplied would be to almost say, become a slave to your work. Or... You know, you ju- you've got, if you're working on making widgets, you've got to work your hardest and do your best at all times. And it's like, no, it's not worth that. But we ought to work sincerely. We ought to work, <laughs> you know, with, with enthusiasm and with discipline and diligence. But it doesn't mean that this has suddenly become the main thing. It's fairly similar to verse 17, really. Whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Absolutely. So there would be some similar principles that would apply to all of life. Absolutely. Everything we do, we ought to do it the way Jesus would want us to. And so if we're thinking of this slavery as serving the Lord and glorifying and honoring Him, it's not just a matter of submitting to your earthly master, it's a matter of using your service as a means of glorifying God. So you think not about what he deserves, you think about what the Lord deserves. Other thoughts? Okay, how about two to six? 